Ever tried reading while jogging, cooking, or even juggling flaming torches? Yeah, doesn't end well. But with Audiobooks.com, you can conquer books without the circus act. Dive into over 450,000 titles, including more than 10,000 free ones. Get hooked on a bestseller, find your next obsession, or finally read that classic you've been avoiding since high school. And here's the inside scoop. Sign up today for a free 30-day trial and snag your first three audiobooks on the house. Sign up for your free trial at audiobooks.com slash podcast free today. That's audiobooks.com slash podcast F-R-E-E. Hello and welcome to On The Ledge Podcast, episode 144. I feel like a bingo caller. Uh, It's probably because I've been playing bingo with my children during lockdown. We have a little... Middle middle machine with balls inside it that you were around. It's great fun. I think it's it's <laughs> it's made me think of every number in terms of uh, bingo calling. So yeah, all the fours, forty four. Well, one hundred forty four. Anyway, anyway, I'm rambling now. I'm going to get on with talking about this week's show. And in on the ledge this week, I lay down some truths about some underrated house plants and why I think you should be growing them. I know, giant groan of despair. Yes, more plants to add to your wish list. But these are all cast iron, brilliant plants that you should be growing. So I hope you'll enjoy hearing about them today. Also, I answer a question about that eternal problem of the flat dweller, how to get hold of soft water for your plants. And one listener has come up with an idea that we will... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> run over and assess. Uh, I'm, uh, yeah, you may be able to tell from my tone of voice that I don't think it's that much of a good idea. But nonetheless, I am impressed with his inventiveness. Are you curious? Yes, I, th- I thought you might be. Well, that's coming up soon. Have you stopped scratching yet after last week's mealybug episode? Nope, me neither. Those little things really do wheedle their way into your subconscious as well as, of course, your plants. And several of you have got in touch, including Dana, to tell me that the Mealybug episode was incredibly useful. In fact, like me while listening, you ended up spotting some Mealybugs on your plant. So happy to be of help in that regard. Thank you to everybody who has fed back to me about my comments in last week's show about Black Lives Matter. I have received such a positive response from everyone who listens to the show that it's been really, really heartening and some excellent suggestions for other causes to donate to. So in addition to the five organisations in the US and the UK that I mentioned in last week's show, I've also now made donations to in the UK the Runnymede Trust and Stand Against Racism and Inequality, and in the US, the Bail Project, the American Civil Liberties Union, the NAACP, and Firebird Community Arts. And I still have a little bit more money to give away, so do drop me a suggestion for an anti-racist organisation which you would like me to donate to, and I will 
get onto that as much as I can. And one more thing on this topic. You may or may not know that I run an online course on pitching for freelancers. This is aimed at garden writers or people who aspire to be garden writers who want to learn how to research and execute good pitches. So in other words, sending messages to editors of gardening magazines and other publications saying, I've got this piece I want to write. Can you commission me? And that draws on my many years of experience as both a freelancer and a commissioning editor. And this course is close to my heart and everyone who takes it seems to find it incredibly useful. Um, as part of my auditing of my own behaviours and practices, I am offering two places on the plus version of this course for BAME individuals who are looking to become or are starting out as garden writers. So I'd like to give first refusal on those two places to a listener to the podcast. So if you are starting out as a garden writer and you feel you need some direction on who to contact, how to contact them and so on, that's where my course can come in. And if you would like to get one of those free places, then drop me a line or two on the ledge podcast at gmail.com. And if I don't get any take up from podcast listeners, I will then widen the net beyond that. But I wanted to give you guys the chance to take those places first. And it's also gratifying that lots of you are joining me on Patreon. Luanne, Kristen and Sandy have all become legends. Sarah has become a crazy plant person. And Heather has upped her pledge from crazy plant person to legend. And if you're a patron, this Saturday at 6pm BST, I'm holding a Zoom meeting for all patrons at all levels to come together and have a little chat about a little project that I'm working on right now that I need your help with and to generally shoot the breeze and talk about what we need to do in the show in terms of topics to cover and all kinds of different things. So if you're a Patreon subscriber and you want to join that Zoom meeting, you just need to log on to Patreon where you'll find a post about it uh, with all the details in there. And if this Patreon malarkey is all a bit much for you, then do remember you can donate to the show in other ways, including code-fi.com. You can also make a donation on PayPal or you can just support the show in lots of other ways by getting the word out there about On The Ledge on social media and in person. And indeed, lots of listeners find imaginative ways of helping out with On The Ledge and listener Laura, who lives in Italy, has begun translating episodes of On The Ledge into Italian because she's concerned that there are lots of people in Italy who would love the show, but their English isn't good enough to understand. So she has begun. And if you go and look at episode 134, you will find that the translation for that episode is now up and Laura will be working on other episodes too. So thank you very much to Laura for doing that. That's so kind. And if you know anyone who's an Italian speaker who might want to tune in, then do go and check that out. And another great way of supporting the show is by leaving a podcast review on your app of choice. And lots of you have been doing that lately and it's really cheered my heart. Tales from Midnight and Beck Loves Plants in Australia have both left lovely five-star reviews. So do leave me a five-star review if you can get the words gutation or crashulation acid metabolism into your review, you get extra brownie points, okay? Give it a go. 
It's time for our first underrated and unpopular houseplants. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, all houseplants are popular right now, but there are some plants that were all the rage in previous decades that for some inexplicable reason just haven't made it back into popularity in the last few years of the rush of excitement about houseplants. And that saddens me because in the case of these three plants, I think they're all rather fabulous and we should be growing them more widely. So bear with me while I talk about these three plants. And the first is the wonderful, the epic. Oh, by the way, this is a member of the Saxifragaceae clan. I am totally unapologetic about the fact that, yes, it's another saxifrage that I'm going on about. As you will know, if you listen to the show regularly, strawberry saxifrage, saxifragia stolonifera, is a major favourite of mine. This is another one uh, in the same clan, and that is Tolmea menziesii. I love the Latin name, but I love the common name too. It's the piggyback plant. This has got a couple of different common names you might know it as. It's called the piggyback plant most commonly, but you might also see it called mother of thousands, thousand mothers, or even youth on age. <laughs> youth on age, seriously. I guess that's all about the little plantlets that's growing on the top of the leaf. That must be what it is. But how, how are we just imagining saying, how lovely, look at my youth on age plant. It's doing so well. And I've got one here. And one of the things I like about certain plants is that the leaves are just very strokeable. I would describe them as being roughly hairy. <laughs> I mean, can you hear that? I'm just holding this up to the... This is me rubbing a plant. You never thought I'd do ASMR, would you? But <laughs> here we are. This is me and my Tolmea having a little moment together. Um, this plant was given to me by the wonderful listener known as June. Thank you, June. You've given me so many great plants while you've been a listener to On The Ledge. And when she gave it to me, it was like going, jumping in a time machine, Bill and Ted style, and going back to my childhood because this plant was everywhere during the 70s and 80s when I was a child. Why the name? Well, it's very obvious when you look at a plant, any plant of this species, because Everyone will have a tiny little plantlet on many of the leaves. You'll find at the point where the petiole, the leaf stalk, joins the leaf itself, there will be a baby plant growing, a plantlet emerging from a leaf. It's very exciting and I just love this aspect of the plant. There's a few other plants that do similar things. Of course, there's calanchos like Digramontiana that do this. But that's on the edges of the leaves as opposed to the point where the stalk joins the uh, lamina or leaf blade. So, yeah, it's a really great thing to have. I mean, it means that the plant becomes not exactly hanging, but it does look good in a hanging basket. And it's a very generous plant. So you can easily make new plants in the mat a matter of moments by just pinning down one of these leaves with a, a plantlet on it into another pot with a bit of damp compost and it will root. But the preferred method that I've used is the old hummus pot method, or though in this case I use a larger plastic takeaway container and put some water in there, snip off a few leaves and their stems, stick them into the 
clear plastic container with a drop of water. So there's water just covering the bottom and they root very nicely that way. And then you can transfer them over into a pot. So this is a really lovely plant with these softly hairy leaves. The one I've got is the, the only cultivar I've ever actually come across, which is called Taff's Gold. So rather than just having a plain green leaf, the leaves are splashed with pale yellowy goldy colour um, and it's a, a very beautiful variegation on these already beautiful leaves. Where does this one grow in the world? Well it's from the west coast of North America so we're talking about everywhere from California right up to British Columbia in Canada and just going into Alaska as well. So it grows in shady forests, moist spots, often growing alongside a stream or some such. And so that gives us a hint as to one of the great qualities of this plant, that it is actually possible to grow it as a garden plant here in the UK in our climate and also in large parts of America and Europe too. As, as a garden plant, you can have it outside if you want to or leave it outside over the summer and bring it in in the winter. Um, inside, it's not going to like being stuck next to a radiator in a, in, a, in a stuffy, overheated, dry air room. It really is a plant that needs to be somewhere cooler. So if you've got a cool kitchen windowsill, which is where mine is situated, that's great. There it will be very, very happy. Interestingly, this plant has become a naturalised plant of the British Isles as well. According to the online atlas of the British and Irish flora, which is a great resource, uh, this plant was introduced in 1812 and was first recorded in the wild in 1928. And looking at the map, which shows where this has been recorded, there's quite a few dots on the map all over the country showing where it's been found. I wouldn't recommend that you uh, release one into the wild, but it's fine to keep in your garden or as a house plant. Now, referring to my favourite book, our old friend Dr. Heseon. Now, he calls it a novelty plant. Now, what's what does what does that mean? A novelty plant? I guess it's something like those calanchos with the plant that's on the edge of the leaf, or maybe it's something like a Venus flytrap. I guess it's in a bit of an old-fashioned term now, but. A plant that does something unusual, but, you know, as we know, loads of plants do incredible and unusual things. Uh, but what Heseon points out is that this is an excellent plant for child's propagation as it is easy to propagate by planting the babies. So, yeah, uh, I can say that's very true. And in terms of keeping this plant around young children and indeed pets that might like chewing, I don't think that you would have too much of a problem with that. It's listed on the Plants for a Future website, which is uh, an encyclopedia of plants that are used for medicinal and edible purposes. And according to that, the leaves are edible uh, and the young shoots in spring. I doubt very much whether they're particularly tasty, but certainly that indicates that they're not toxic to humans. And I've checked the ASPCA website, which is an excellent resource on toxic plants. And they state this plant is not toxic to dogs or cats. So a good one to choose if you have nibblers to deal with. So uh, we know that it's a plant that lives near water in the wild. And I mean, this is, makes it a bit of an unusual plant for me because normally I go for plants that don't like a lot of water. And I find plants that need to stay moist quite tricky. This plant is incredibly forgiving. I have let it go completely wilted a couple of times and it's come back absolutely fine. But it sits on my kitchen windowsill. So any dregs of water that uh, come out of the 
dining room in people's cups will go into this plant and that just seems to keep it at the right level of moistness. Like my darling saxifrage stolonifera, this is a plant that's a short-lived one. So the best thing to do is to keep a few plants propagating because after a couple of repots, it will just start to look a bit miserable and you can then bring along one of your plants that you've already rooted and start a new specimen. Now, maybe that I'm in a minority about loving this plant, but I did see this plant at the Chelsea Flower Show. I think it was a display that was put on by North One Garden Centre, the oh-so-trendy houseplant shop, and they had one of these in a beautiful bowl. I must get a nicer display for, for mine, uh, but it, it really is an attractive plant when it's displayed. The leaves look a bit nettly. Uh, and you know when you touch them they do feel rough but don't worry no sting um, but they just look absolutely gorgeous and I could spend ages looking at these the plain form is also lovely too and you know if you do get a few leaves that look a bit miserable there's it's so easy and so fast to regrow that it's easy just to take anything off that's looking subpar Obviously, spider mite is a risk for this plant if it's in dry air, but I've got spider mite on my calatheas and I've never had spider mite touch wood on this plant. So here's hoping. When you are repotting, you know, do remember, as I say, where it's come from, you know, redwood forests on the west coast of the US and Canada. So it needs quite rich soil. If, you, if you're potting up ferns, it might need a similar kind of thing. I used to just usually repot this straight into absolutely pure peat-free compost which is from Melcourt and that seems to work perfectly well I don't put any perlite or anything else in in there just straight houseplant compost seems to work really well in terms of getting hold of this plant well it's uh, I can't really say it depends where you live there are a few on eBay uh, that come up once in a while in the UK. And I suspect that if you've got older relatives who are into houseplants, they might well have one of these that they can snip off a plantlet for you. So keep your eyes peeled. You never know when you're going to come across one of these plants and be able to beg a baby. And now it's time for question of the week, which comes from Ben. Now, this is an interesting one. Uh, ben lives. I mean, this is a actually this is a common issue that comes up again and again and again and I've answered it in various different contexts over on the ledges existence but this is a new take so I hope you'll bear with me on this I think it's a really interesting one to discuss so Ben lives in a flat and he doesn't have a way of collecting rainwater so he wants to know if there is any reason that he could not siphon off and collect some of the rainwater from the river nearby to use as water for plants like bromeliads, which really do require softer water. And he lives in London, so clearly hard water is an issue. London's water is very, very hard. Lots of dissolved mineral salts, which are the things that plants like bromeliads really don't like. Top marks, Ben, for your inventiveness, but I'm afraid the answer really is a no. Uh, my main concern would be bacteria in the water. Uh, the Thames is a lot cleaner than it used to be, significantly cleaner than it used to be, thanks to lots of efforts to reduce pollution. But there is still a high risk that there's going to be bacteria in there. The reason being that there's a system in London where, and this is down to rather ageing sewers that long need to be replaced but are still there, um, where if there's a storm situation and there's lots of water flowing, 
the excess sewage from the sewage pipes goes into the river. So it's not a constant thing, but it does happen whenever there's a lot of extra water about. And that can mean that the river has got bacteria in it from sewage, which as you can imagine, you don't really want to be putting onto your houseplants. Also, the pH of the water is a little bit more alkaline than advised. I've, I will link to, in the show notes, to a Thames River Watch water quality uh, survey which shows that the pH is around seven or eight which is really I think a little bit too alkaline for your plants so that's my take on it I wouldn't advise using that river water on your plants now if you lived I don't know somewhere where you were lived next to a crystal clear stream where the water quality had been tested to be excellent it might be a different story but I think for most of us living in urban and suburban settings it's probably not a very good idea um I also refer you back to the episode, which I'll link to in the show notes, where somebody asked a similar question and I suggested some options. But the thing that a reader came back to was a water filter called Zero, which does filter out 100% of mineral salts. This was back in episode 118 and the Zero water filter apparently is brilliant at getting rid of all those mineral salts. It's not cheap to buy. I think it's you're probably going to pay 30, 40, 50 quid for it, depending on whether you're in the US or the UK or elsewhere. But it does seem to provide water that would be perfectly fine to use on your plants. So you could filter your tap water and get water that would be absolutely fine on your bromeliads. I mean, I think that it's definitely worth trying to be inventive with the collecting of rainwater if you can, if you've got friends with outside spaces or gardens who are prepared to, perhaps in exchange for the odd bottle of beer or some such, collect some rainwater for you. That's a good idea. Um, But as I say, this water filter, if it works as it's advertised to do, then it seems like a really good option if you can afford to splash out on it. I hope that helps Ben and if you've got a question for On The Ledge then do drop me a line. There are many ways of getting in touch. Ben got in touch on Patreon because he's a Patreon subscriber but the really most reliable way is to send an email to ontheledgepodcast at gmail.com and you'll get a reply then from either myself or from Kelly, my assistant and I will do my best to answer your question. Given the number of questions I get these days, it's not always possible to answer every question so I'm really sorry if your question doesn't get answered but do check out my website you can do a search in the top right hand corner for different topics and you may find the answers already there in my website so do go and check that out if you've got an unanswered question Righto, back to unpopular houseplants. <laughs> and the second plant was prompted in my mind because a listener got in touch to ask for an ID. And that listener was Mavis from Canada. And Mavis wrote, can you help me with the identification of this houseplant? I took a cutting of this plant about six years ago from someone in the office and have been sharing this plant with others ever since. It has beautiful foliage that's a bit waxy, very easy to grow, drought tolerant and can be propagated through water. It also trails nicely from a shelf. 
After six years of calling it the best low maintenance houseplant, I searched the web for information on the name and have not been successful. Well, I was happy to reveal to Mavis that this was indeed Swedish ivy Plectranthus verticillatus. This used to be called Plectranthus australis, I think. And just like Tolmea menziesii, this plant used to be absolutely ubiquitous. You'd find you'd got your piggyback plant and right next door you'd have your Swedish ivy. Now, I don't really know why it's called Swedish ivy, because in fact it comes from southern Africa like so many succulent plants. I guess it may well be that the Swedes, uh, houseplant fans that they are, first popularised this plant just as they did with the Pilea peperamioides, which we all know about those who are regular listeners to this show. And the ivy bit's misleading too because it's not a member of the heterogeneous, but so like so many trailing plants that have the vaguest resemblance to ivy, it's ended up with that common name. Recognise it by the scallop leaves. They are fleshy and thick, so we can cope with a bit of drought. And you do get these white flowers uh, which appear once in a while. They're not that exciting, but, you know, it's it, a flower is always a nice thing to add. And it's a beautiful plant to have as a foil to other plants to make a living curtain or having a hanging basket. You just can't go wrong with this one. It's a, it's a member of the Lamiaceae, the, the mint family, so you'll get those square stems that you get on members of this family. And if you're looking for an absolutely bomb-proof trailing plant, this is it. These little scallop leaves about the size of a 50p piece. I can't relate to what coin that might be in other currencies. Uh, you know, the size of a... What's a universal thing I can describe? The size of a... Conker? Does everyone know what a conker size is? Anyway, <laughs> about two to three centimetres across these leaves. It's just a, a really lovely plant that's easy to keep. And if you can find them, there have been some cultivars bred of this plant. But, you know, these days you'll actually be lucky to find the plant at all because it really has fallen out of popularity. And I've no idea why. I would love to hear from some nursery owners as to why this plant isn't grown and propagated and sold. It will survive being allowed to dry out. It will survive a bit too much water. It will survive quite a lot of sun. It will survive deep shade. It is a... One of those plants that just keeps on going and going and that's why it was popular in the past and that's why it should be popular now. The Plectranthus genus is an interesting one. There are lots of other species and cultivars of this plant that are grown as house plants. None of them are massively popular now but you can get hold of some of them so it's definitely a genus that's worth checking out if you're looking for things that you can kind of use in hanging baskets and summer displays outside it's a really handy plant because it is so tough and it's very, very easy to propagate too. So keep your eyes peeled. Look around when you're visiting older relatives and see if they've got a Swedish ivy tucked anywhere and get yourself a cutting. It'll root very easily in water or in gritty soil and it will tolerate all kinds of abuse. I don't actually have one of these plants right now, so I myself am looking out for one. So if you are in the UK and have a cutting. Let's talk. I'm happy to do a cutting swap. And talking of Pilea peperomioides, my final unloved, unpopular houseplant is another member of the same Pilea genus, which is inexplicably unpopular. And that is Pilea moon valley. Now, if you're looking for a leaf that is truly interesting, this is one to look at. 
I mean, Moon Valley, the name tells you something. You look at this leaf and you are drawn into canyons, mini canyons, as the leaf crevices follow the path of the veins of the plant. This is a cultivar of the Pilea involucrata, yet another plant known as the friendship plant, which isn't that exciting to me personally. But the Moon Valley cultivar is beautiful. It's got a chocolatey dark centre and the edges of the leaves are lime green and they're, they've got a, a sharp uh, saw edge on each of the leaves. And they are what Haseon calls deeply quilted. And I just think they look gorgeous. I guess the downside with these plants is they can be short lived and not like it if they are given too little in the way of humidity. It's from Central and South America, so hence the humidity that's required. They're good plants for a terrarium setup or for sticking a glass cloche over. And again, they're plants like the Tolmea that you do need to take lots of cuttings of regularly because they will get leggy and a bit messy. So you've got lots of cuttings coming through that you can then replace your main plant when it uh, gets to the stage where it's no longer beautiful. But Pilea Moon Valley is a really lovely plant. Why aren't we growing more of it? The other way that you can keep it bushy is just by constantly pinching out the stems and encouraging more bushiness to come. And that way your plant will last longer. I'm starting to see the Moon Valley cultivar pop up in a few places now. So do look out for it. And if you are a grower of this plant, do let me know what you think of it. Give it a reasonable amount of bright indirect light and that humidity that it loves and you should find it fairly easy to keep going. It used to be one of those cheap and cheerful plants that you'd buy at the garden centre very cheaply and enjoy and take lots of cuttings of for your friends. So this is one that you can, if you can pick up one, this is one that you can really spread around to lots of people. Again, stem cuttings will easily root in water or in some soil in, you know, in spring or summer. The other pilea that you may come across is the aluminium plant, Pilea caderii, which is a green leaf and it's got gorgeous silvery etching splashed on it, which is again the same deal. It needs humidity, short lived, take lots of cuttings, but it's beautiful and it will be, it's a fairly easy plant provided you just get that humidity right. So I would always, if in doubt, stick it in a terrarium situation. So those are my three unpopular and underrated houseplants. Agree? Disagree? Don't really care? I'd love to know your thoughts on these three plants. Are they favourites from your collections, ones you've never heard of, or plants that you absolutely despise? All views are welcome when it comes to plants. So drop me a line and let me know your thoughts and show off your pileas, your tolmeas, and your Plectranthus. I think it's really time for these plants that used to be so popular to come back into the spotlight and take their place with all the existing popular plants, the Aroids and the, and the Calatheas. We need to start appreciating these underrated houseplants. That rounds up this episode of On The Ledge. So keep on keeping on till next week and I'll be back next Friday with more plant chat. you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by the Joy Drops, 
Flute and Drum Rishikesh by Samuel Corwin and I Snost I Lost by Dr. Turtle. And the ad music was Whistling Rufus and Dill Pickles, both by the Heftone Banjo Orchestra. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. See janeperone.com for details. <laughs>